0: You're listening to episode 17 of the Creative Strings Podcast. My special guest today is cellist Mike Block. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, everybody. I'm stoked to have Mike Block here today. I've wanted to have him for a long time. And the timing was important because it's summer. The summer sun has emerged and of course, you know what that means. Summer is the time for music camp. So many of us have had those, you know, great experiences during the summer when you take a week or two weeks and you just immerse yourself fully with a community of people who are just really digging in to their craft. And so, most of you, if you know me, you know about the Creative Strings Workshop, which is in its fifteenth summer, fourteenth or fifteenth. Don't quote me on that. Of course, it's a labor of love, and it's a it's something that I truly, truly enjoy. Uh, bringing people together every year from the string community. And part of the reason I want to bring Mike on is because Mike, who has been to Creative Strings Workshop before as a camper, created his own camp a few years back, um, Mike Block String Camp. I wanted you to be able to hear about Mike's camp, other camps he's involved with, one with Yo-Yo Ma, because as far as I'm concerned, the more of these types of camps that are put on, the better it is for our community in general. As you'll hear during this episode, Mike's got a lot of really great ideas. A lot of cool projects he's working on and just an interesting way of thinking about all these things at the intersection of Creative Strings. So I know you're really going to enjoy this one. I hope you uh, dig in. Before we get into the interview, uh, I want to thank our sponsors. Yamaha sponsors the Creative Strings podcast, and they have supported my educational projects for almost a couple decades now. The new Yamaha electric violin retails for around $600, and it's a real masterpiece. I encourage you to look around. I even made a video about it. If you search on YouTube for Christian Howe's Y-E-V, you'll be able to see that. And our sponsor, Electric Violin Shop. They've been with us from the beginning. I'm so incredibly excited for the Electric Violin Shop crew because they have recently signed a sort of precedent-setting deal, and they are now an employee owned business, which is really, really super hip, based in North Carolina. Of course, they do business all over the world, and there's really no place in the world where you can get more help when you're looking for electric bowed strings stuff. And now, I hope you enjoy this interview with cellist Mike Block.
1: Darling, I have come to tell you Though it almost breaks my heart But before the morning, darling We'll be many miles apart Don't this road, look a road wide and Don't my baby look the sweetest she's in my to sleep.
0: Mike Block thank you so much for joining us today on the uh, Creative Strings Podcast uh, my friend. Good to talk to you here in Boston
2: I am home in Boston yes
0: and uh, close to Berkeley, right? You're you're still teaching at Berkeley.
2: I teach at Berkeley on Mondays, and um, usually traveling the other days. But I live uh, nearby in Somerville.
0: Oh wow! You're usually traveling the other days. How much are you traveling?
2: Uh, this spring was big. Um, it, it seems to go in phases. Uh, Hanuk and I are both home this whole month, actually, which is uh, partly because we're recording a new album for her for two weeks. But uh, but yeah, it's actually a rare luxury to go four weeks without having to take a plane.
0: Wow. Okay, four weeks. And so usually usually you're traveling traveling every week, some of the days?
2: Seems like it. Wow, Yeah,
0: that's great. So you're busy. I am excited to talk to you about a few things. Uh, you went to uh, Juilliard, and right? Did you get your master's or your bachelor's at Juilliard? Uh,
2: yeah, I did a master's at Juilliard and then undergrad was at Cleveland Institute of Music.
0: Okay. So it's hard to get in Juilliard. I mean, like, like only like really, really good players. And I remember one of the times that we actually sat down and played like some in like sort of a quasi classical music setting. And I, and I kind of like my mouth kind of dropped a little bit. I, I I might not have shown that to you, but I was like, wow, this guy can really play the cello. And that's kind of I mean, anybody goes to Juilliard, they got to be able to really play. It's like a whole nother level. Right. And it's a it's a classical scene. Mostly, I'm sure I'm assuming what you're doing at Juilliard. So that's why I think you're a great person to talk to for what I'm interested in in terms of creative strings. I know you're interested in it, too. So, I mean, a lot of classical musicians, I think, are a little skeptical about, you know, creative string playing. And they think, well, you know, who has time to do both? Well, you you have time to do both. I mean, you went to Juilliard. Obviously, you play the heck out of the cello. So why did you decide after going to that length in classical music, I mean, really mastering, you know, the whole thing, classical cello, why did you decide that you wanted to branch out?
2: I think that I started branching out in undergrad, actually. I think, you know, in a high school setting, you can get a lot of attention for just, you know, being passionate about something or being good at something. And so that can take you and, and you can ride that in order to get into college. But in college, I think I, I think my expectations of what it would feel like to be a musician and the sort of the creativity and the expressiveness that I wanted, I, I wasn't experiencing yet. And so I was getting a little depressed, and I had uh, an amazing cello teacher, Richard Aaron, who, uh, you know, for better and for worse, focused on technique to a really high degree. And, and I remember, like, it felt like like I was in this sort of like Zen training with like Mr. Miyagi, where it's like I was just practicing scales for three hours a day, you know, while staring at the mirror. And you know, it was a very rigorous technical standpoint, but I was feeling like I was not actually necessarily enjoying the end product as much as I was hoping I would have. So all this to say, um, I started improvising very badly and trying to compose and like buy effects pedals and try and like, sound like a guitar through digital effects. Uh, in undergrad, I was just really grasping for different uh, feelings that could, I could find while still playing the cello. And, and I held on to those, but I, I didn't quite know what I actually wanted to do. I was quickly developing an idea of what I didn't want to do, which was play an orchestra. But I didn't have another option in my head yet. So for better or for worse, my mentality was I kept what I was supposed to do until I figured out what else I wanted to do. And that's why I went to graduate school, even though I already knew by that time I did not want to be a classical cellist. I just didn't know any other path. And then while I was at Juilliard, I was really excited to be in New York. And I remember very clearly uh, in the computer lab there, like going on Craigslist for like an hour or two every single day, looking for people posting to play with like lead guitarists, looking for like rock bands, looking for a lead guitarist. And I had some pedals and I was interested in it. So I would reply to all those postings and started joining bands in school then. So I feel like for me I had this latent need for the feeling of creativity and of collaboration and and while I was in school I, I really struggled to find uh, a clear way to pursue that and so when I discovered the music of this great uh, jazz cellist uh, Hank Roberts out of Ithaca yep. you know he he was not only was he improvising and, and doing stuff but he was singing songs and uh, and and he was going through pedals and I remember he was the very first person I heard that made a convincing case for, you know, the cello through effects and for singing songs with meaning and you know with the cello. So that was a big impact on me. So all of that, you know, I was grasping while I was in school. It's not like I was 100% classical 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 and then took a massive left turn and just gave it all up. It was really like me not knowing how to follow my passion so i just kept doing what my teachers told me to until i had a better idea of, of why not to go to Juilliard basically
0: yeah that's um, that's that's awesome and well that and that makes sense and i mean would you say that you were motivated more by wanting to play different styles of music outside of classical music or that you were more motivated by wanting to be more self-expressed or more creative or something else or both
2: i think both yeah I think the two of them, they're part of the same point. Really? Yeah. Like, I still don't feel like I have a single stylistic specialty. For better or for i I feel like I've managed to figure out how to fake a number of styles without really committing to one. It's not like I left classical music in order to play bluegrass. Like, I'm still searching out and getting better at, you know, various things that I'm hoping but what I enjoy about that process is I feel like in different styles of music, I feel like it brings out different parts of me. Mm. And in a jazz situation, you know, I am a different musician than if I'm in a rock band or if I'm playing, you know, classical music again. And so I really enjoy sort of finding myself in these different contexts and being able to explore different parts of myself in different styles.
0: Yeah. And would you say that... um You know, every style of music that you play, it kind of, especially since for like you and me, I mean, coming out of the classical bag, when you go and you start playing bluegrass or rock or jazz, it's like completely brand new and foreign every time that to different degrees. And so it also kind of forces you to learn more about music in a way, right?
2: You're totally right, yeah.
0: And and I mean, and then I think what you're also talking about is that your it helps you develop your creative voice. Which before was always just defined in terms of how you interpreted a sonata or fit into a cello section in an orchestra or something like that. I, I guess, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And so your voice can kind of expand when you go into these different stylistic territories, but it also is expanding your knowledge of just how music works and what's possible in different styles and and how that's going to influence you as a composer. I mean, I mean, what would you say that you know really de- defines your voice as a musician? I mean, is it because I know you also compose, you know, music in a variety of styles. I mean, how do you think of your voice? Is it a combination of all these different things? Or is it like, is it different as a composer, an improviser, a classical musician?
2: I try and avoid when I'm composing, like writing a bluegrass tune or, you know, I, uh, that's a good question. I think um, ultimately different styles offer different toolboxes. Each style kind of has a different value system. And so it kind of helps me think in different ways. You know, certain styles value rhythm more than anything else. And you know, certain styles value harmonic complexity and you know, some styles it's all about melodic nuance and variation and so just having those experiences, you know, can help you think of different things to compose. But that, that is a big struggle for me, actually, because I'm really, like, passionate about learning musical languages. I have this weird utopian dream that, like, I could encounter any musician and be able to have a conversation, like a meaningful musical conversation with them. And so, like, I strive for that, while at the same time, when I try and write my own music, I try really hard to not let it be, you know, a parody of a style. And I really am trying to go inwards and try and figure out well what's really inside me regardless of you know the languages that one is working on
0: Well, you kind of, it sounded to me like you kind of referenced a tension that we all experience to different levels, especially if we're eclectic. I mean, if, you know, the tension is, you know, you want to be able to learn the nuances of a specific style like bluegrass or something. But the only way to do that is to really, really deeply immerse yourself in that. Whereas, you know, if you're taking on a lot of new things or trying to do a lot of things, you can only go so deep into any one of them and also that you're not trying to define your own creative voice in terms of one style or another you want it to be unique and so there's a tension between wanting to go really deep into a style to understand its traditions and conventions and on the other hand the tension of just being pulled in a lot of different directions and wanting to be unique how do you deal with that because i know like for example you're very immersed in a lot of different folk Playing like with with Hanukkah and with a lot of other people where you've had to learn different conventions of those styles, you know. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that you're kind of resisting it at the same time, right?
2: Yeah, I kind of have two sides of maybe my own energy and, and, but also music in general. Like, you know, to learn multiple languages, being a better, more versatile, professional musician, someone with the craft that can be applied in many situations and can make you valuable to many different people and you know you want to bring something to the table and so like there's a professional reason a uh, benefit you know to branching out and uh, like there's that whole side that I appreciate and I like being able to work in different environments but in contrast to that I, I think of like the artist mindset which doesn't care about versatility it compares about developing that one unique voice like the one thing that you do that nobody else does and i think it's a very different focus you know I, I try and really make sure i carve out time to explore the artist side and and the creative side apart from what i would call the you know the craft of music
0: got it so yeah like i remember when i moved to new york a lot of people talked about that so and sometimes people would speak of it in Almost a derogatory way, like the idea of being a functional musician or a studio musician. Sometimes would say uh, yeah. some people would say, "Well, if you're a studio musician, it means that you know a producer can ask you to just." Give me this bluegrass thing here. Give me this pop thing here. You know, this specific something, which in some ways we do as classical musicians, right? We're taught like, you know, learn this Mozart articulation, learn this, learn the Beethoven articulation. And then within that, you're expected to be able to play Beethoven on his terms and Bach on his terms and modern, you know, Bartok on his terms. And so it's like really becoming very stylized in a way. Of course, you know, classical musicians, I'm sure you agree it's it's a highly creative process, nonetheless, but it's different than this idea of you know being a a, a totally creative artist. And people in New York would say that to me. They say if I go to the studio, you know, I'm going to play what I hear on your music. I'm not going to have it be dictated to me what the composer wow. wants. And so, I mean, I'm very familiar with that that kind of tension. I think we all wrestle with yeah. it in different ways. But also, we express we express that artistic side of ourselves in different ways too, like. In your case, I know that you do a lot of it as a composer, and you write songs, which you sing, and you also play cello. And I think that's a really great way to express, you know, what is the voice of Mike Block? Well, you can really hear it in his songs. I mean, it's unquestionably that came from Mike Block versus if I hear Mike Block, you know, accompanying Hanukkah. Castle, is it Hanukkah Castle, Castle Block or Hanukkah Block or how she? Uh- uh,
2: the stage name. Uh, yeah, Hanukkah Castle, my uh, wife. She's been playing under that name. She plays contemporary Scottish music. <laughs> but um, yeah, she did legally change her name. Uh, to block, but uh, professionally, it's still
0: castle. Okay, great. So if you're playing with with Hanukkah castle or Hanukkah block or whoever, you know, then you know you're not necessarily being as you know people aren't going to hear all oh, that's definitely Mike Block as much as they're going to hear like that's a really good Scottish cello player or whatever, right? I mean,
2: yeah, I mean Hanukkah's band in and of itself is not the most traditional context, right? So you know, it's not like a it's not a so black and white, but I know exactly what you're saying, and I remember trying to figure out like. What made me happy and what made me unhappy, like professionally and musically, and and like I, I even ended up making a list just to like for myself, just to have some sort of like litmus test, like for like do I want to do that gig, like can I predict if I if I'll actually be happy doing that for two weeks or not, and like uh, so one of the things that I made it into my list was I, I, if at all possible, I like I'd like to. Pre- I'd like to avoid playing music that other cellists play. You know, I don't wow. want to learn somebody else's part. Well, wow. I don't, if you know, I'd love to make up my own part if possible, but you know, I'd love to be in a situation where there's flexibility to explore my own side of something. So, all that to say, like, yeah, if, if I'm in a situation where I'm feeling a really rigid box, I, I, I would not gravitate towards that, that situation. It was quite a, you know, a realization to put it on paper, you know, just for for what it's worth, like the things I can even pull it up here. Some of the things that, and it's almost like embarrassing, like what I realized made me happy, but I, it was simple things. Like I'm happier when I'm in a situation where I will have the opportunity to speak to an audience. Wow. And like, like whatever, you know, whatever, it doesn't mean I have to be band leader, but there's going to be some semblance of collaboration to the point where it would not be bad if I spoke to the audience and, wow. and like things like that, you know, and being able to, to not play a part that some other cellist is known for so that I can avoid, you know, trying to, uh, you know, that baggage that can come with it. You know, all this being said though, you know, that, balance between you know learning from other musicians learning from other styles being the craftsman at the same time that's the one thing that fuels your own artistic toolbox like nothing else so it's not like an either or and that's what really transformed me like after Juilliard, i started going to camps like your camp and fiddle camps of all kinds and yeah. and just to really like the word that stuck out to me was traditions like you know the jazz tradition the bluegrass tradition there was so much people have already figured out over tens and hundreds of years of playing that that can then i can then use so that it's you know it's a it's a constant tension of of trying to add more tools to my creative toolbox without realizing that i've gotten six months without making anything of my own you know that kind of so problem.
0: so in a way it's you you're saying you're trying to prioritize this idea of making or or at making your contribution creating something that's uniquely you, you're trying to have more situations where you're doing that on an ongoing Mm -hmm. basis. And it kind of is, you're also creating a lifestyle for yourself. I mean, your career, I get the sense is very bound up in these, these decisions you make about, am I going to take that gig next week based on these this litmus test or these different variables of you know yeah. how, how I want my life to look, which it also includes how much you travel or, you yeah. know, how much pressure you take on as a leader versus having a little less pressure sometimes as a side person, but also being subject to the control to some degree of other leaders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, but do you still enjoy playing classical music?
2: I do enjoy playing. I think I enjoy it more than I used to, honestly. And, Kind of, kind of what you were saying. You know, when you're learning about music in general from experiences in different styles, now I hear classical music differently, and I, and I have, I feel a different role when I'm playing it. Uh, although, to be completely honest, I don't really miss rehearsing classical music.
1: <laughs>
2: rehearsing classical music is a whole other ball game than playing classical music, and. Uh, one thing I remember hmm. really appreciating about the folk world uh, that people didn't feel the need to verbalize everything wow and, and I think it can go too far in either direction but what I love is is oftentimes like when things are feeling good just you know you just let it feel good and you don't you don't have to verbalize it or codify it and wow. and in, a, in in you know the string my my Image and memory of, of being in long term string quartets is that everything is talked about, everything is discussed, everything is planned. And uh, I think that process is not my favorite process.
0: That's amazing because also we think of that as almost this venerable, you know, I don't want to say holy, but this like reverential thing. Like to be in a professional string quartet and to rehearse three hours a day, like my, uh, my friend uh, in the Pendoresky string quartet uric uh in uh near toronto uh was at. he came to the camp you know as a participant a few years ago and then and then i came i went up to his the conservatory and gave some workshops and they rehearse like two three hours a day i think that's actually
2: not very much for a professional string quartet
0: but i mean we're taught to respect that right i mean yeah
2: Oh, I I remember, you know, at CIM, Cleveland Institute, I feel like that is a breeding grounds for some incredible chamber music ensembles uh, have come out of there and they have a really great program. And so I remember people like talking, like you're saying, very reverentially about like, oh, Emerson Quartet, they rehearse six hours a day. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just what they do. And like, I remember thinking, oh, that's so cool. And now like I don't think I could, I could survive rehearsing string quartet six hours a day. Um, But that's just me now.
0: But that's really interesting. I mean, it's almost sacrosanct to say that, but I mean, clearly, I mean, you still respect that they're, they're putting that level of care into what they do and they're producing great results, right? So why yeah. the disconnect?
2: This is such a dangerous conversation because uh, I, you know, when I was in school feeling frustrated with classical music, I started reading all these books that would help basically help me rationalize why I was unha- unhappy Like, there are some good books, like The Agony of Modern Music by Henry Pleasance, Who Killed Classical Music by Norman Lebrecht, who's a big-time blogger now. Like, I I just remember searching out books that could tell me everything that was wrong with classical music, and I got really philosophical about everything. But uh, I, I have come to appreciate that, you know, a lot of this is just personal preference, and it's like, it's not like there's something wrong with that, or that other styles have something intrinsically better uh, I think ultimately it's, it's not as attractive to me, um, and that's a very subjective thing, you know.
0: That's cool. That's that being said,
2: I could I could probably rationalize it with philosophy for like twenty minutes, but <laughs> at the end of the day, it's it's just like it's just a preference, I think.
0: But that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that a lot. And what in what ways do you feel like your classical playing is better now because you've done other things?
2: I do think that I think improvising has allowed me to play more instinctually. Mm. And I think that has obvious musical applications, but I think it actually upped my technique. Because uh, you know, my my undergrad teacher, Richard Aaron, we the, our goal was to become like conscious and intentional about every muscle that we engaged at any moment. And the only way to reduce unnecessary tension is to make everything conscious so that you isolate the muscles. You know, you're not, you don't want to lift anything or hold anything that's not directly affecting yourself. So that's a process of becoming more and more conscious. But I think the danger of that is becoming self-conscious and being sort of afraid to act, or afraid to use your body. I, I remember feeling like the less I move, the better I must be playing, and uh, mm. so I you know I had this value system based off of like simplicity for its own sake, and all this to say you know you know I still wouldn't hit every single shift, you know, and, and not that I do now, but improvising I think that direct ear to hand relationship I didn't get until I was really starting to improvise. That I think made my technique more natural and comfortable. And then I think, particularly, a lot of the folk styles where the cellist has a rhythmic role has changed how I hear rhythm. You know, I went through a phrase where I really wanted classical music to have a much steadier pulse.
1: Right. And,
2: uh, and I think I'm, 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 now I'm, I'm appreciating the flexibility of pulse more in classical music, but it's definitely a switch that I consciously turn on. Like, okay, I am going to be flexible with the pulse today because <laughs> I have this piece. And I'm just gonna follow the melody, even though ninety percent of the rest of the time the melody's is following the bass, you know, it's like those mental switches, you know, become part of being a multi style musician where you have to sort of channel channel your, your expressiveness, you know, to the situation.
0: Well, coming out of classical music also, I mean, one thing I'm inferring is that you're really giving some respect to the degree of a challenge that it is to become a pulse player. I'm assuming that you had to go through that. I know for me it was it was tremendous. I mean if you grow up as a classical player and then you you try to start keeping a pulse. I mean it's hard to do, right? I mean
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But you've kind of gone out to the other side now and you're a fully bilingual in terms of playing pulse or playing no pulse. So I I just want to make sure the listeners caught that because I think a lot of classical musicians or strictly classical musicians, they're not aware to the degree to which it is like another value and a really important one to be able to kind of take
1: on.
2: Yeah. It's a hard thing to verbalize, but I think you hit it on the head, which is, you know, learning how to play groove based music and to do it well really is not instinctual as a classically trained musician.
0: Well, so going back to this idea about the tension between, you know, eclecticism, I mean, you know, really embracing all these different styles of music out there that we haven't heard, And being good at any one of them, (laughs) or being able to have like you know to have a conversation, as you said, with any you know musician around the world in your utopian society, that's kind of what you're doing in this new camp. I know you have a few camps. I want to make sure everybody knows about all the Mike Block String Camp. You know, there's all these new, but there's one that you were telling me about when we were at Asta in your collaboration with uh, your your most recent collaboration with Yo Yo Ma. Um, Could you tell us a little about about what you're doing there? Because I. I think it's really pretty amazing you were describing it I think it's really cool.
2: Yeah, so this year 2016 is the second year of Silk Roads Global Musician Workshop. So Silk Road Project is this organization that Yo-Yo Ma started. He's the artistic director and uh it's basically, you know, a cross-cultural arts organization but The primary arm is the Silk Road Ensemble, which features musicians from around the world, particularly the Eastern Hemisphere. It's an amazing group. And uh, Yo-Yo was tracking sort of what I was doing with camps. And he was actually, I remember very specifically, he couldn't believe that camps could make money. Like he's like, wait a second, wait a second, you don't have funding? Like this is operating like on its own. And I think when he really processed that, he. Uh, it wasn't soon after that he really was asking me, like, what, what could a Silk Road camp, a Silk Road project camp, look like? And so what we ended up with is is this global musician workshop. So it's a multi style experience, and uh, every teacher comes from a different culture and you know plays a different instrument. You know, I, I really try to stretch out of my comfort zone, and and get as many non string teachers as possible. Uh, so Bruce Mulski this year is is the other string teacher. But the faculty includes uh, Hadi Elderbeck, a Lebanese oud player, Bala Koyete, a Balaphone player from Bali, West Africa, Sandeep Das, a tabla player from Delhi, Seamus Blake, jazz saxophonist from New York City. And uh, we've got uh, a Korean traditional wind player named Gamin. And uh, we've also got Abigail Washburn. He's doing sort of a mixture of Americana, Chinese, Edward Perez, Afro-Latin bass, Shane Shanahan, word percussion, and special guest, Bela Fleck, the epitome of multi-style musician. The participants all play in a band led by a faculty band leader. Basically, from zero to performance, the band leader will lead his band of participants, his or her band, um, and teach them the style, the repertoire improvisation, work on the arrangement, and basically everything they need to know to play this Arabic tune. And uh, each participant can play in multiple bands during the week. So it's, it's meant to be a very like intimate, small ensemble experience working on music from around the world. And what was the surprise success of the workshop last year, our first year, was that the students were even more diverse than the, the teachers. And, uh, and so we had 90 students from around the world, you know, coming from Iran and India, China, and uh, throughout America. And so we kind of were thinking, well, this will be a nice experience in diversity for classical musicians. Uh, but it turned out to be a much more three-dimensional experience where, you know, even the teachers were getting, being tested. Be like, how, how do I teach a band that includes uh, an Indian musician, a taiko drummer, um, an Iranian tanbur player, and uh, and a Ruan moon guitar from Singapore. Like it, it really it was a fascinating thing where everybody, no matter what their background, was equally out of their comfort zone, uh, and so it was really an inspiri- inspiring. and and you know, you Chris, you've done camps for many years, and at this point, I've been. Going to camps, you know, for ten years and directing them for seven. This last year at the Global Musician Workshop was like the most transformative experience I had had at a camp since uh, since the first time I tried running one. So it was it was a really new experience and a special feeling.
0: Yeah, and and I remember distinctly saying, you know, you've got these extremes of exotic. You know, players, and you you, you jumped right, right there. you you jumped right on me. You said, "Well, you know, exotic is is just about a frame of reference. It's not exotic where they're from, you know." And and I'm, I was,
2: I'm sure there's uh, plenty of uh, musicians who think jazz violin is probably pretty exotic
0: or but west yeah. or Western classical music is very exotic to an yeah. uh, you know a an Arabic musician, for example, or uh, you know someone who is trained in classical uh, Indian music you know to them like the idea of playing Beethoven or Mozart is just as foreign as yeah. the other way and and you know the challenges though of you you talked about the challenges of communicating, about the music to people that aren't thinking about music in those, the same ways, you know, it's like if I was going to try to play Indian classical music, I'd have to, first of all, be able to communicate about the rhythms in a completely different way than I think about rhythms, right? Or flamenco music. They don't even count it the same way we do, right? I mean, is that kind yeah. of one of the things you're, you're talking about? I mean, the challenges of...
2: Yeah, that's, you're exactly right. I think, I mean, it's not just a language difference. It's a, it's a, it's a mental you know, the way people are thinking, you know, the way an Indian tabla player is thinking about rhythm, you know, when they try and accompany me, you know, he's thinking about, well, what cycle will I play in? And then once he decides which cycle he's going to play in, like if I'm thinking in four, four, and I'm just grooving, you know, one, two, three, four, and just whatever, he's probably the, Sandeep he, he will think in a cycle of 16 beats called team tall. And when he does that, you know, that has all of this baggage, cultural uh, baggage for him. So he's thinking of all these things that he's used to doing in Tintal or that would be really great to do in Tintal. And, you know, it's like, and he's also, you know, Indian musicians. I'm just using this as an example because Sandeep Das and I, the top player, we have a duo. And so we've worked together very closely. And, you know, the Indian, uh, they don't have the the concept of form in the same way, excuse me, that we have, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea of an A section of you know, solid length and then B section and then going back to the A section. So, you know, the way that I've learned to arrange, you know, like changing things by section or his concept of how to arrange is totally different. Right. And ultimately, four times as long, you know, he, wow. you know, they like to take time to develop. So, yeah, to have a collaboration is not just about speaking the same language, but make sure that you're actually seeing reality in the same way. Yeah. Like, are we both, are we both even hearing the same thing?
0: Totally not. Right. It, to me, it sounds like a recipe for disaster on multiple levels. <laughs> so, I mean, like, uh, just like utter. I can just imagine, and I've been in those situations, you know, in different yeah. ways. And I just am familiar with the, just the frustration of it. Just like, we're never going to meet on this. It's like the from Venus, ver, from Mars kind of thing, times 100, almost in a way, right? I mean, in a musicals yeah. way. And so how how is it transformative in a positive way i mean i mean obviously you had tremendous successes and i've heard from participants that had a great time at this shameless plug you know it's 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 it's, it's reminiscent to me of what i've tried to do with the creative strings festival but in a different way because creative strings is really about string players and we're dealing with a a more limited range of styles and exoticism, you know, and we're, and we're helping a lot of times classical players. But, I mean, you're dealing with different instrumentalists from all over the, around the world that have completely different value systems. You're putting them in a room together and saying, learn about this one type of music that you may not know anything about from this one yeah. band leader. How can anybody actually go really deep into that in three days? Yeah. How yeah, can they ex- succeed?
2: But honestly, like, I mean, what I find the most satisfying in these situations is exactly when everything breaks down. Because there's no real defined role for what how cello and tabla are supposed to interact. So if I'm a string quartet, it does, you know, whether it's a know or not, I know how to be a good string quartet cellist. And I can kind of fill that role, you know, without even really looking up at the other musician. So for better or for worse, I can sort of not really be myself when playing Beethoven string quartet and I can just be a good quartet cellist and things will go very well. But when you have no preordained role to, and guidelines to follow, what I like about working with musicians from different cultures and backgrounds is that we have no choice but to just be ourselves. And so it's like it's not even a duo for cello and tabla anymore. It's a duo for Sandeep and Mike. Like what are the two of us as individuals, what are we going to do? How are you and I going to interact? And I I actually find that the more separated the backgrounds are, often the more personal the collaboration can become because people don't have as many uh, expectations and roles that they can sort of fall into.
0: Is that like the depth of a bond that you can make with someone who doesn't speak the same language as you? Like you meet somebody who's Japanese and they speak no English, you speak no Japanese, and you're forced to communicate using very little, and and then you make a deeper connection that way. But you can't really say as much, though, either, right?
2: It's different. It's very different. I mean, luckily, you know, there are some fundamentals in music, uh, you know, melody, rhythm, harmony. and
0: Universal things. Yeah,
2: I mean, I mean... When I say harmony, even that's debatable because <laughs> Arabic, Arabic musicians have notes that I don't have, you know, right. at least in their ear, you know, and uh, and rhythmically, you know, uh, you know, Latin musicians are playing rhythms that I still can't hear. So, you know, but all that being said, you know, there you can always reduce something to a common, you know, some common denominator. Like what do we share? Let's start from there yeah. and uh, go as far as
0: we can so but there was magic that happened and you're saying the the interesting thing the learning thing happened the, the teachable moment happened in these breakdown moments but something emerged from that that was that was beautiful the i mean the final performances and people learn stuff i mean what what do people take away from that i mean you know the, the your success story you know participants who came and they left after six days they said i had a great time and this is what i learned what did they learn i
2: think that you know having an authentic experience of and really developing a friendship with somebody that you never would have met otherwise. Yeah. I think is transformative. Like that's cool. I think the world becomes a different place, you know, like the news cycle becomes a different experience. If you wow. have a friend wow. who's from who lives in Tehran. Yeah. Know? If if you know somebody in Tehran and you've learned, you know, three Iranian pieces of music from this person and perform them, like any any political discussion of that region of the world is going to have a different meaning for you all of a sudden. And, um, yeah, that's deep. And so I think the personal relationships are a big part of it. Like it's one thing to, you know, get a book or get a recording and learn a tune from any style. Okay. I'm going to learn a Chinese tune. I want to learn Jasmine flower, Molly And it's beautiful. And I learned it from this YouTube video. That's, you know, that's, that can be meaningful to a certain degree, but if you've learned it by ear, from somebody who lives in Beijing, and, you know, just that experience, I think, is totally different.
0: So this camp, again, is called the, the Silk Road?
2: Globalmusicianworkshop.com.
0: Globalmusicianworkshop.com. Okay, cool. And yeah. then there's mikeblockstringcamp.com also, right? Yes. Very nice. Very nice. So mikeblockstringcamp.com, you started the Mike Block String Camp about seven years ago, and... Cause I remember you had come to participate in the creative strings workshop, maybe a couple yeah. years before. And mm-hmm. I remember you telling me about how you really wanted to be a teacher. Um, and you had wanted to be a teacher for a, a while. And I, I believe maybe your mom was a Suzuki teacher and you had for a long time known that you wanted to, to be a teacher. Is that right? Uh,
2: well, my, my parents are both teachers, uh, not Suzuki, not string teachers. Um, but I did Suzuki training in college and, uh, You know, yeah, for whatever reason, I feel like I've always been teaching alongside the performing, and and so when I was seeing you already, I was probably, you know, I was feeling so empowered by all the things I was learning, you know, at camps. You know, there's there's so many skills that I desperately wanted to have, and then once I felt that satisfaction of being able to do something, like, I just always wanted to instantly turn around and, and share it with other people who... You know, hadn't been to your camp yet, or whatever the situation was. So it's not like I always wanted to be a teacher. I think for me, I, teaching and performing—they uh, were never two separate paths for me. So it's, it's always—it's often been through camps and teaching opportunities that I've gotten to meet and work with other great performers. And so I've I've appreciated how those two things dovetail a lot.
0: Well, I want to talk about Mike Block String Camp, but before I do, I mean it. It strikes me when I hear you talk about it, it strikes me how much your life is really integrated in terms of your music and your personality and your values. Even just how you made that comment about if you do a gig, you want to be able to connect with the audience or talk to the audience and how you talk about, you know, performing and teaching being so connected. I think about how you make decisions about which gigs to take and, you know, structuring your life so that you're sharing music with different people you know the importance of the personal relationships all these things strike me as really this great model in your life and in your expression of your art as this kind of creative lifestyle or a you know an artistic lifestyle a career and music making that's all integrated. Would you say that you think about it in that way, that you think about how it's all integrated? Like you're a creative person and you're always sort of expressing that in a lot of different ways, whether it's like running a camp, teaching a private lesson, collaborating, composing. Do you think of it that way or not?
2: Well, I think you're onto something like, I think any aspect of your life can be an outlet for creativity. I think that running a business requires creativity. I think Running a string camp is in line with that, you know, not just the business side, but then the schedule and the, and the how do you pace, you know, a hundred people's experience for a week. Like, I find that incredibly satisfying and creative to explore and try new things. So I think part of me would admit that, like, you know, like some people say, oh, I, I can't imagine being anything but a musician. Right. And I love music and everything I do seems to revolve around it. But I don't know if I would say that. I don't think I couldn't be happy if I couldn't play cello. I think at this point I'd, it'd be pretty sad, but, you know, I, I enjoy the outlets in, in different directions. So as I don't think I'm consciously aligning philosophical approaches, you know, like maybe as intentionally as, as you're asking. Then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, so if, you know, like let's say you put a lot of work into something. You know, let's say you have to learn a a show's worth of music as a sideman for another guy, you know, for another recording and a subsequent tour. And like, you're going to put a lot of creative energy into that and that's going to be satisfying even if you're not the leader. You know, for me, I then take that thought and be like, okay, if I'm going to invest three and a half weeks of my creative energy into something, what will I be left with after that three and a half weeks? Is that going to be energy that I can build on? Um, and so, 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 so sometimes I, I, I find myself not being attracted to a situation where I'm going to invest a whole bunch of creative energy into a one-off gig. Like I used to do a bunch of arranging. Like I, I was sort of music director for this dance festival in Vale for for a while, Vale International Dance Festival. I did it a couple of years, and it was so much work. And it was like, you know, it was like everything needed to be perfect, and you're collaborating with all these dancers, but. I felt like at the end of the day I would, I would spend like 20 hours on an arrangement, it would get performed once, and that 20 hours is gone. Like, I'm not going to be doing that arrangement again. So as far as uh, integrating, as you're asking about, I do, as I'm getting older, want to connect my activities and, and, and allow them to benefit each other in a way that's meaningful. Like, I don't want the camp to take away from my music as much as if I can find a way for it to support my music and, and vice versa. Like if I'm out touring for for three weeks, can I you know promote the camp and can I have everything feed each other? I think is what I'm looking for these days.
1: Yeah, but I mean,
0: even the idea that the business side does inform the artistic side, I think a lot of times artists don't think that way. I like that. And in my case, a lot of the things that I set out to do, it was because I saw them as a means to be an artist. But then as I got into them, I realized, well, this is a means for my creativity, as you said, although it's in a different way. But right. at first I was thinking, well, what? Do, you know, how am I going to... Be able to actually have a career as an artist. Well, I have to do this thing over here. I have to make this sacrifice, you know. But eventually, it leads you to uh, be more multifaceted. Hopefully, or more multi-capable, and express yourself in a lot of different ways. So, Mike Block String Camp. I mean, I'm sure you're going to take some of what you learned at the Silk Road Global Musician Workshop, and you're going to be tweaking. I'm sure you tweak every year. I mean, I know you've got two weeks. You've got a yeah. main week in Florida, and then you've got an extender week, and there's a lot of chamber music aspects at the Mike Block String Camp, very much like you described in the Global uh, Musician mm-hmm. Workshop, and, and as well as like at my camp, the Creative Strings Workshop. So yeah. what's what's what would distinguish uh, the Mike Block String Camp experience
2: from the Silk Road camp,
0: yeah, or from yeah. anything else, uh, yeah.
2: I think when I when I first started the camp, I was I had a lot of models that I I was stealing from, you know, directly in right. a way. I grew up going to classical camps every summer from, you know, age thirteen through twenty three. So and and for whatever reason, I never enjoyed a camp enough to go back twice. So I went to a different camp every single summer.
0: Ah, wow.
2: And then, uh, you know, my life was transformed going to camps, fiddle camps and jazz camps such as yours, you know, after school. And so I am a firm believer in the life-changing potential of camps because they changed my life. And so those were completely different models. Like, you know, the classical camps tend to be four to eight weeks long. And here, you know, I was at a five-day experience that could change my life. So that was inspiring to see what can you do in just five, six days. And and uh you know the the emphasis of learning by ear is something i i wholeheartedly believe in particularly because it's it's a different relationship with the instrument with music that i did not grow up with so i i I really see that demarcation line uh, very clearly so what i what i remember you know loving about marco cotter's camps was just all the different style of string teachers that were there and really i you know i think there is something to be said for comparative learning you know, I think you can learn something about bluegrass that you wouldn't learn otherwise when you learn it alongside a, like a Celtic fiddling style. Mm. You know, figuring out what makes bebop bebop is, is in a way like if you're also learning what makes early jazz not bebop.
0: Right, you know, right.
2: You know, I think, I, think, I think there's a lot of value in, in learning multiple styles side by side, if only because you start to see the differences in a different way. So, cool. so that struck me at Mark's camp. Like when I first went to the Mark O'Connor camp, I had no idea there was more than one type of fiddling. Probably, you know, right. like the difference between old time and bluegrass took me probably a few years. Oh to yeah, really me hear,
0: too. Me too. To <laughs> yeah. Middle, right. Yeah.
2: But but and, and same with like Celtic and I, sorry Scottish and Irish music you know right. or even like you know Shetland music from northern Scotland you know right. there's there's obviously you can get very deep in so <laughs> so that I appreciate at Mark's camp at your camp what I appreciated is it reminded me of my favorite experiences at classical camps which was the small ensemble
1: right. and
2: that's what was missing at Mark's camp for me right. was there was no ensemble work there was no progression. It wasn't like something that you would work on during the week and then perform it at the end of the week. Um, and yeah. I remember being so like like having so much pride in my string quartet at a classical camp. We would spend four weeks working out a piece right. and we'd get coachings twice a week and we'd play in master classes and at the end we would play one of Mozart's, you know, string quartets and that progression of really building right. from start to finish I found so satisfying. And so I knew, you know, so that's a big part of what we do at my camp. We divide everybody up into bands, and then they are responsible for the creative direction of their arrangement that then we coach them on at the end of the week. And that's what I liked about yours, is I remember you talking a lot about, you know, learning on the bandstand and learning in a professional environment. And I think that had a, a big impact on me. And I think the variation that I explored from what I saw and experienced at your camp was actually to do much less repertoire and right. to actually embrace. And this is, again, probably building on my classical background is, is I still value rehearsal, <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, even though I talked about it earlier, not valuing it. But, you know, like, what, what can, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to learn repertoire and, to, and have that experience. And, like, and I learned so much just, you know, reading through charts and, and hearing other people play at, at your camp. But so the the only difference is at my camp, each band only performs one piece. Right. So, for better or for worse, you know, it becomes more about making an arrangement. So, we make space for improvisation in the arrangement. I think the bands end up sounding like we'll have two bands that might choose the same piece to arrange for the final performance, and they'll sound completely different. And so, I think the, the luxury of time. Allows you to go more inward. I, you know, I find it so. Yeah. So it's that it's that balance again of you know learning skills and learning tunes from a tradition, but then like how do you take that and make it yours? Yeah. And uh, and what do you do with it? And uh, you know, a lot of fiddle camps will teach you repertoire and they'll you'll get to jam. But I kind of still have a performance mindset. It's one thing to be able to jam and to be able to interact, but how would you make it you know, worthy of an audience sitting down and listening to, and how do you, how do you get it to that level? So that's sort of where we go in my camp is kind of with that performance in mind.
0: That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. And I've heard so many great, you know, testimonials about people that go to Mike Block String Camp. And I, and as far as I know, it's similar to Creative Strings Workshop in the sense that, you know, it's open to high school, college, and adult amateurs and professionals. And one of the, you know, the hard thing, I'm sure for you and for me a lot of times is communicating to people like, no, oh, this is for you. This is for you. <laughs> you know, I don't care. You're an amateur and you're 50. It's for you. You're, you're a, you're a, you know, you're a section leader of a, of a, of an orchestra, viola section. This is totally for you. You know, and like people don't believe it. They're like, no, isn't it just for teenagers or isn't it just for, you know, don't I already need to know improvisation? But obviously I, th- I think we, we kind of roll out the welcome mat to the same, wide spectrum of people. But I've heard only great things about the Mike Block String Camp. And I and knowing you and how how much you care about it, you know, I know that you're just you're all about the service. And well, as you said earlier, you know, really creating an experience, you know, for every person. You want every person to leave having had this transformative experience. And and so I've I've heard that about your camp. And I know that you like me are probably obsessing every year after the camp all year for the next year. What can I tweak? How can I make, you know, an even more transformative experience, maybe slightly different this year, you know, based on last year and, and we always want people to come back, and that's a good sign if they come back more yeah. than one year, <laughs> you know. So, and I've heard that people do return indeed to Mike Locke's string camp you know, multiple years. So that's a, that's a great testimonial in itself for it. So, let me uh, ask you about one other thing. I might have missed something, and but I, you know, I really appreciate you taking time, you know, to be on the Creative Strings podcast. But the block strap. Is awesome, yeah. man. You know, I mean, I mean, I can't not mention the block strap, and it's not just a, pl- it's not just a commercial plug like go buy the block strap, but it's it's really because I mean, again, this isn't just a. Something. I mean, you're kind of transforming, I mean, you're making people really go, wait, what? I mean, that's it's it could change the way people play the cello. I mean, you're not the first person that stood playing the cello or, you know, or even maybe used a strap. But I mean, you've developed a, a strap that can work for a lot of people. Do you want to talk a little bit about the block strap?
2: Of course. I was, I'm always waiting for somebody to ask. Yeah, but so it's been a long journey for me with standing and playing and, and designing. This strap so that I could stand and play, and, and now we sell it, and, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, for me, I was very inspired by Rashad Eggleston, who has been standing with a like a basic guitar strap uh, for a number of years. And I'm assuming your listeners would be the people that know all about him. But he is one of the most, you know, talking about artists versus craftsmen, he is such an inspiration to me as far as the dedication to diving into the artist side and really exploring. You know your own personal genre of music
0: and um, well and i've got to say rashad is a craftsman i mean well, yeah
2: it's 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 hard to separate them because i mean
0: he can yeah, yeah. the guy can play bebop i mean he can play you know folk styles he i'm sure he plays the heck out of some classical music when he wants to i mean he's he's incredible i mean
2: yeah the craft of the chop that he's developed is is beyond any other cellist at the moment so it's it's he's definitely not lacking in that department But so, Rashad, obviously, has been standing with a strap, and and he was teaching at my camp for a couple of years, and I really appreciated that opportunity to to spend more time with him, and obviously, I was jealous, you know, of his (laughs) mobility and his freedom and his expression, like, it's undeniably powerful, and here I was, like, willfully refusing. (laughs) There was this one moment at camp, like, after the faculty concert, Rashad did his thing, and it was gorgeous. And the next morning, at like 10 a.m., three high school boys showed up with straps Whoa. on the cello. And it was amazing. Not only, like, how did they even find straps <laughs> like, <laughs> at this speed, but you know what it was, is they were inspired by something, and they and they went after it. Wow. And there was something about their, I think, you know, I had an ego that was holding me back from really giving it a fair shot, like, oh, I learned to play cello this way. Cello is "quote unquote" supposed to be a certain way, and 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 they helped me realize that oh, I can be excited about this too. Wow! I I can just give it a shot, and uh, eventually I did, and then was still struggling with the differences that it made. Like the the cello ends up being much more horizontal, right? um, And and even actually more vertical uh, in a different angle. So basically, none of the angles are right. They weren't what I was accustomed to. I mean, the the nerdy part of myself was like, oh, I can I can solve this. I can figure this out. So I actually started, again, I started a Word document and I started listing all of the changes in my technique wow. I would need to work on oh my in gosh. order to play. So I was like, oh, so my right wrist has to change the angle. I have my right wrist be more outwards like this and my left hand is going to be less oblique and it'll be more square on the cello, and that's fine until I get to fourth the Like I was wow. getting very, very into figuring out how to change. And after a month, I just wasn't getting very far. Like, I, I couldn't play half the music I was playing professionally. I wouldn't be able to play it like this. And, and I just decided for myself that if I was going to do this, I wanted to play everything on the strap. I didn't want to like sit down for something that was hard. I didn't want to have to go back and forth. So all this to say, I eventually decided that instead of changing my technique, I should just change the strap. Wow. And then I spent two years working on it, you know, experimenting with the strap and, uh, you know, Tying things in different places, adding cushions in different places. And uh, it took a long time, and I played a lot of concerts while not being confident about the strap setup. And there was even one time one of the leather straps broke 20 minutes towards the end of the concert, and it was stressful and it was frustrating. And every concert, I was changing something. So I was, I really just wasn't comfortable and eventually was getting better, you know, better and better design. And so, what I'm playing on now, what I'm selling through CelloStrap.com, is the result of those two years of experimentation, and the end result is I've got something that I feel like gets me 97% familiarity uh, with how I feel when I'm sitting. What's been interesting is that 3% that's different. You know, how do I turn that into an asset? And like, what can I do with the strap that wow. I couldn't do sitting? Wow. And so, there's a lot of interesting things like violinists have said. Is something that you guys think about. Which is that you can actually move the instrument, right? In like in a contrary motion to the bow, yeah. And in different things, and that's not something that cellists think about very intentionally. Wow. But now with the strap, I can twist, you know, in opposite motions with the bow and get more power. And there's so there's these interesting things that, like you said, like I, I would humbly say, like could actually change change the way that people play cello. Wow. If they try, and it's cha- it's changed everything for me. It's changed my my how i feel with music which is which is huge that's changed my life you
0: know oh my goodness that's incredible What is the, what are the typical responses people you know cello players like you know advanced like you know advanced cello players when they when they put a you know the the block strap on you know what what do, what do they experience typically?
2: It's it's always like there's always the surprise once I get it set up they're always like oh this is pretty comfortable like people always think it's going to be heavier than it is I mean the cello is hollow it's not really that heavy so it's always surprisingly comfortable and then after they play a while that. People often say, "Oh, it's more stable than I would have thought." People think it'll shake around a lot. So, those are the good feedback that we get. And you know, honestly, like, so we saw each other at ASTA, where I I I had a booth and I was fitting this strap on hundreds of people for a weekend, and I you know, there's like a a good percentage of people that it feels great immediately, and then there's like a, a smaller percentage of people that takes like four minutes, and then there's a smaller percentage of people that like, you know probably would take a day and you know like I think depending on the body type and the way that you're used to playing cello everybody has different preferences and and everything so all this to say like I think everybody's experience is different and I've tried to the best of my ability to design it so that it promotes good technique but that it's not a hundred percent like that. It's not limited to my preferences, my yeah. personal preferences, and yeah. it's adjustable enough that people could play it very differently than than I would prefer to
0: play it. Yeah, that's great. So cellostrap.com, if they want to check it out. Uh, what if they want to just try it, but they're not sure? Can can they send it back if they're not happy or something like that? Or
2: yeah, yeah, we've we've accepted three returns. Out of 400
0: sales. Oh my goodness, man! That now that's see that come on now, and so but that's you're a pretty good
2: percentage.
1: Oh,
0: but, but but so you're saying you allow people if they're not happy they can send it back and they'll get a refund and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, wow. And, uh, cool.
2: Two of those people, I think, were 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 elderly, like not elderly, but they were older people. Yeah. Who, like and you know, sometimes people get it because they, you know, they have a back problem when they're sitting. They think standing might feel better. And right. So I, I, know some people do get it as an experimentation. Right. Um, and so yeah, I'm fine accepting the returns. But, but what I do uh, before I accept the return is I ask them to send me some pictures and videos and just make sure it's set up right and see if there's anything I can do to help. Oh yeah. Because I obviously I'd love to get them to, to love it you know first if possible
0: well no but that's great but i think it's great because if people might be they might be a little bit nervous about you know whatever it is like what is it? a hundred dollar investment or how much it's,
2: it's over a hundred dollars but you know chris
0: it's a small price to pay to change life <laughs> that's right well i mean the ability to be able to stand and have you know and you know kind of connect with the ground in a different way you know i i can imagine would would be transformative physically and so yeah, so not much more than $100 you can get the cello strap. I didn't my intention was not to make this a commercial plug, but at the same time, I mean it's a big deal. I mean, people can try it out and if they're not happy they can send it back. I you know, cellostrap.com. Check try out the block strap. I'm excited about it, man. I think it's really cool everything you're doing. I want to ask you one more question. So, my question is, you know, both of us obviously we're we're in agreement on so many things, I think in one way or another and you know, we're we're really similar. When I hear you talk, I, I just, I love to hear you talk and, and I learn a lot from it. And, and I feel like so much of it, you know, mirrors things that I believe And but you say them in different ways and you think about things in beautiful ways that I haven't thought about them. And I, I really appreciate that, man. Um, so, you know, we both want to transform music education. We want to see music education change. How would you describe, you know, what you would like that to look like? What would you want to see change about the music education system, whether that's, you know, private teachers or, you know, orchestra teachers in the public schools, or I don't know, however you want to respond to that question. What, what, what changes do you hope to see in music education?
2: I love that your final question is such an easy uh, softball (laughs) question. (laughs) Already you're you're articulating that there's a lot of different types of music education. So what does public school education mean for elementary kids versus what does the conservatory look like for the professional? Those are different beasts. I think, like, again, and a lot of this would be subjective, but I think that music is one of the best ways to learn about the world around us and to learn about other people's cultures. And I think that should be in the public uh, school uh, scene. I think... I think while people are learning history or learning geography, that music, and and what's great about music is that it's participatory. That participation in culture, I think, is meaningful. As far as like applied, like orchestra in schools, I personally I think that the orchestra band choir model is incredibly arbitrary and designed to allow one teacher and one salary to. Uh, to, see is to take care of as many bodies in, in the student population as possible. I think that there's no other subject, like math or science, that, there's no other subject where we say, okay, we're going to teach just math from Europe between 1650 and 1900. That's the best type of math, and,
1: that, and that's the math that we're going to focus on.
2: So for us to say that about music seems incredibly arbitrary. Wow. Um, and so I think the orchestra as a as a model of a certain time period in Europe is good because it allows one teacher to, to teach a lot of the kids, but I would love to see a lot more small ensemble work. Because I think that's what, if we want kids to learn something in school that becomes a part of their lives, it's going to be most likely, you know, small ensemble work that could connect to the rest of their lives more meaningfully that coincidentally, I think, can connect uh, to a lot more non-classical styles as well. So I, I think there's room for that in the public realm. I think also, like, apart from learning about the world, you know, how do you learn about yourself through the arts? You know, I think it's really important that in a lot of subjects, you know, you, you've heard the argument between STEM and STEAM, probably. Right. And and what, what are our core subjects? You know, science and technology, engineering, math. And can you get art in there so that STEM becomes STEAM? And, and I think what they're talking about in the future is that with technology, computers, you know, we're not going to need people to follow directions. That's not what we need in the next generation. We need creative people to think of new solutions to the world's problems. And I think that approach and that creative mindset can get explored in the arts and in music often better than in math or, or other subjects where there's a right and a wrong answer and and I think training students to collaborate and to create you know new things that didn't exist before I think that would mean a lot for society too so that's my plug for public school education you know as far as like what's wrong with the conservatories which I have a lot of opinions on because I went to two of them Actually, I could okay. I could probably make my answer as short as possible. <laughs> this this is my answer. If you're going to teach me to idolize Beethoven, then please teach me to do what Beethoven did.
0: Ah, <laughs> he wrote so, a lot of music.
2: He wrote a lot of music. He was a master improviser, Chris. Beethoven. I don't know if you know this, but he would win. Impro- improvisation competitions on the piano. And that's they, they talk about how he would be win first place in these yeah. improvisation competitions all the time. And back then they would be these really cool things for pianists where they'd like they'd like call out like a, a tune for the pianist and you'd have to like improvise an arrangement and variations on the spot, that kind of stuff. Like
0: cutting um, heads.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, but what was interesting about him as an individual is that even though he was this master improviser, he also took really long time to compose wow. and, and they say that he struggled with making those final detailed decisions and that it wasn't interesting because he had this improvisational fluidity that he still made the effort to, mm. you know, do that. So anyway, that to me, that, that kind of sums it up, which is that like...
0: Be an so artist. We, Teach people artists, to be artists. Yeah. Be creative, yeah. So, well, that
2: was nothing. Yeah. Nothing intrinsically wrong with the classical style, um, nothing intrinsically wrong with classical music, but I think uh, for us to be Beethoven today would look very different than what uh, what they're teaching at the main conservatories.
0: <laughs> well said, my friend. Well, and everybody here, you just remember, Mike got his master's at Juilliard. <laughs> I love Mike that you're able to carry the torch for. You know for all these values so well and that you really have that credibility to you know to stand on to and nobody can argue if you hear Mike play a you know a, a Bach Bartina or something you know you'll shut up and listen I bl- believe me I've, I've been there Man, is there anything else you want to let people know about at all? I mean, if they want to find you or anything like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously I am findable on, on the World Wide Web, myblockmusic.com. No, it's been r it's been a real pleasure, Chris, to, to get to talk to you. I feel like you and I often are like, you know, just passing each other and be like, Oh, hey, oh, hey, okay, see you later and
0: uh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: You know, so this was probably like the longest conversation we've been able to have in like since I was at your camp, most
0: likely. I know, man. It was it was good that we just could you know actually kind of properly hang at Asta, you know, yeah. which was really nice, you know, to get to just hang with friends at Asta, and I'm I feel so good to see this kind of this new generation is really, you know, what do they say in politics? It's like interrupting or. Uh, oh,
2: just disrupting.
0: Disrupting, yeah. it's Disrupting, yeah. you know, a- I mean, ASTA's been kind of disrupting for the last 15 years in terms of quote-unquote alt styles, but seeing a new wave of the generation, including yourself and, you know, people really coming in and, you know, and to be able to sit down and have dinner. With all of us at the same dinner table, I was like, "Wow, these are all my friends, and we're all here at Asset." It was just, it was like yeah. a beautiful feeling this year. So, man, I am such a huge fan of yours, man. I'm really grateful. You too, Chris. I'm I'm grateful for you to spending time with me today, man. It's great, great to connect and keep doing the awesome work you are. I'm gonna connect everybody with some. Uh, Good media that you guys can check out on Mike. You, you can go to uh, christianhouse.com and go to the show notes page, and we're going to have tons of stuff, links to see all the different projects uh, that Mike Block is involved in as an educator, as a <laughs> cello strap innovator, as a private teacher. He also teaches online. You can probably study with Mike if you, if you want to. Uh, check out his string camps. Also go to his shows, get his records, listens to his music, Check out the beautiful music that uh, Hanukkah Castle, also known as Hanukkah Block, uh, block uh, Mike's better half. Uh, check out her her projects because Mike's often uh, following her around uh, everywhere as well. Thanks again, Mike. We'll be in touch, man. I ran
1: into your ball. I ran into your ball.
0: Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of that interview with Mike Block. He's a real uh, provocative guy. I I dig Mike a lot. I'm sure you could tell. Of course, we're going to post a bunch of links, uh, some of my favorite stuff and some of Mike's different projects at the show notes page, christianhouse.com. Just click on the blog. It'll pop up for you there. I welcome your comments, your feedback, and I appreciate if you would share and like it and all that good stuff. And maybe most importantly, like I said, it is summer. So if you're thinking about getting off the fence and taking your game to the next level, you know, your art, your business, your career, whatever it is, I wanna encourage you to just make the plunge. Sign up for summer camp. In fact, sign up for two <laughs> or three. You know, make that investment in yourself. Make that investment in your music. There's nothing like taking a week. Uh, Whether you come to the Creative Strings Workshop uh, or if you check out the Mike Block String Camp or the program, the new program he's doing with Yo-Yo Ma, if they even have uh, spaces available, I just want to see all of you go out there and really fan the flames of your creative growth. So thanks again for checking it out, and we'll see you next time.